You all may be seated. Ed, thank you so very much. My name is Doug Jones, and I am the campus and teaching pastor here at the church at Woodbine. It is a pleasure seeing each and every one of you here this morning. Those online, welcome. I do want to congratulate you guys. I mean, we're still in winter, right? We've got, what, two more days? But it snowed today, kind of, flurries. I asked a dear friend of mine, Amanda, hey, is this snow? Because she's from Michigan, somewhere around here. And she said, no, this isn't snow. But anyway, so, but it is for us Southerners. Today, we're going to be looking at this passage, Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. And I feel like we're going to be on a roller coaster because, to be honest, I'm going to preach two sermons. So last summer, my kids and I and Christy, we went up to Michigan. We went to a theme park called Cedar Point. It seems like every theme park has the biggest, longest, fastest roller coasters there are. I will tell you this, if you get a chance to go to Cedar Point, go, because they truly have the biggest, fastest roller coasters on the planet. There's one called the Magnum Force, and we got on, and there was nothing about clickety, 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 and taking 20 minutes to get to the top. This thing flew to the top. It was faster going up than going down, and I'm being a little you know, sarcastic with this. But we finally got to the top, and it literally shot us over. And down we went, and up we went. It wasn't any loops, but there were a lot of crazy curves. And we got done, and my my brother, my son, Sam, was like, let's do it again. So we went and we did it again at some point in time that day. It was amazing. And today I feel like the sermon is going to be a little bit like that. I truly hope and pray that it is Holy Spirit inspired. For those who don't know, we're going through the gospel, not the gospel, the book of Acts. And there's still about six or seven of these journals. It's the book of Acts. On one side is the scripture. On the other, other side is space for you to write your journals. Take one. It's for you. And I know that most of you have. And several of you have commented, man, this has been really good for me, even in my daily devotion. So take this journal. It's free. It's for you. And I'm always challenging us. 365-15-1-1. If we were to read the Bible for 15 minutes a day, we would read the whole Bible in one year. That's the 365, the 15, then the 1-1. One, one. one chapter, and then ask Then write down one verse and ask the question, why does this verse speak to me? How does this verse speak to me? Last week, Johnny talked a whole lot about the end of chapter four. And just to give a little bit of context, Acts describes and explains to us the birth of the church and the early church. When Jesus ascended, there were about 120 Christians. And he told them, stay in Jerusalem. Until you receive the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, until you are anointed with power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, which were regions of Israel, and then to the ends of the earth. And we talked about that, how Peter preached the day the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were filled with Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in tongues, and the people thought that they were drunk, but when Peter preached, he preached Christ crucified, dead, and buried, and 3,000 people came to know Jesus that day. And then we saw how Peter and John went into the temple to pray, and they healed a cripple from birth, and he was jumping and leaping and praising God, and the people in the whole entire temple complex were freaked out, what's going on? And so they rushed over to Peter and John and this man. And Peter preached again. And it says that there were about 5,000 men who had come to know Jesus. Most theologians thought and think and believe that the church was probably 10,000 strong. Within just months of the birth of the church. 
And then last week, Johnny described us from both chapter 4 and chapter 2, describing what the early church was like. How they are of one mind and one body. How the church gathers like we do now. And we were encouraged to gather in large groups and in small groups. We truly need one another. That was last week. The church gathers today. The church gives. Right here in in chapter 4, and this will be on your screen, chapter 4, verse 36 and 37. I want to give a little bit of context. The church is, for us, if you've read these first four chapters, they are rocking and rolling. Signs, wonders, miracles. People are being added to the church every single day. And it says that they had the favor of the people on the early church. I mean, no problems, right? Those who had were selling what they had and giving it away to the poor. There was incredible unity. And right here at the end of chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. Now, a Levite was one of the, they were part of the tribe, the, the Israel, and they were one of the 12 tribes who served in the temple and were responsible for teaching and ministering to all the people of Israel. Joseph, he was a Levite from Cyprus. So he was an international Jew. There in Jerusalem in the early church. It was the one who the apostles called Barnabas. And when we read through the book of Acts, Barnabas comes up over and over again. He was the first leader who truly believed that Paul, who was Saul, actually was converted. And what does it say here? His name, Barnabas, is translated son of encouragement. Always encouraging. Do you know anyone like that? It says he sold a field he owned. He brought the money and he laid it at the feet of the apostles so that they could then use it to minister to those in need. And then if you jump here to verse chapter 5, verse 1. But, but, oh man. Here's the first sermon, but let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give me your words. Father, that you would minister to us, touch us, encourage us, speak to us through your word. As we look at this passage and we look at the word stewardship, specifically tithing, giving, may you encourage us, touch us, convict us, inspire us, spur us on, that we would be generous as you, Father, are generous giving everything back to you, everything we have, everything we are, our past, our present, our future, everything to you for your glory's sake. We thank you, Jesus. We ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. The first sermon is this one, Ananias and Sapphira. It's Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. We won't stand up and read it again like I'm normally, like we usually do, but here's the story, and a lot of you know it, and we just read it in Spanish. Ed, thank you very much. It says, but there was a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. They also, they had property and they sold it. And it says that they withheld some of that money. And the Greek word for withholding was like to deceive, to to appear as being one thing, but actually something else. So they sold the property. They held some of it back, which we'll see. They were very free to do. And then they came and they brought the money, the rest of part of that money, and they gave it to the apostles. And how does Peter respond to Ananias? Oh, 
Ananias, how could you allow yourself to let Satan fill your heart that you would try to lie and deceive the Holy Spirit? And then Peter says, wasn't that property that you owned, wasn't it yours before you sold it? What's the answer? Yes. And wasn't that money that you received from selling it, wasn't all that money yours? What's the answer? Yes. So why did you come trying to deceive us, acting as if you were giving all that you had earned from that sale? And when Ananias heard those words, when Peter confronted him on his lack of not generosity, but integrity, Ananias died right there. Bam. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy on us. Many theologians debate, was he really saved or not? We'll never know until we get to heaven. And it says when he died, great fear came over all who heard about it. That's verse 5. And the young men in the church, they took his body, they wrapped it up, and they took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in. And she and Ananias, they had decided to deceive the apostles. She knew all about it. She knew what they sold it for, and she knew what they actually were giving. And Peter confronted her saying, hey, was it this much is what you sold the property for? Yes, it was. And Peter says the same thing. The feet of those young men who just buried your husband will bury you. And she died right there. And those same men, they picked her up and they buried her next to her husband. And right here in verse 11, it says this. Then great fear came on the whole church, on all who heard these things. It is 1126. You know, we could wrap this sermon up, come up with our response song, do a quick offertory, and be out of here by 1130. What can we learn from this story? Well, the first one is this. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is referred to a couple different times in this passage that he's God and the Holy Spirit resides and lives in each and every person who believes and loves Jesus. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit is not a thing, but the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one who lives inside of us, who transforms us and who sanctifies us. He's the one who inhabits his church and he empowers us to be witnesses of Jesus. The second point is this. There are grave consequences because of our sin. Ananias and Sapphira, they were judged right there on the spot. It makes me wonder who of us would die on the spot for the sins we've committed today. Our sin is so grave that the eternal son of the father was crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. That's how grave it is. It's not a game. This is real stuff. May we never take the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father for granted. Number three, we are called to give with integrity. They didn't die because they held back part of it. They died because they were being deceitful and how much they gave. A hypocrite. Number four, we have great freedom and great responsibility with our time, talents, and treasures. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Let us no longer be yoked to slavery. We talk a lot about being salt and light, using our time and our talents for the Lord Jesus. And all this past year, as Wes Banks was in charge of our offertory, he did a great job exhorting and teaching us about our tithes and our offerings. But I asked the question, how many of us actually tithe? How many of us give? How many of us honor the Lord with, the, with our wealth? And it might be very little, like the widow's might. It might be a whole lot as a multimillionaire. And that's our second sermon, stewardship, specifically tithing and giving. I got a question for you. If you were given $1,000 right now, what would you do with it? Right now, if I were to pull out an envelope, and this black thing, there's $1,000. If I were to give it to you, what would you do with those $1,000? What if it was $10,000? What if it was $100,000? What would you do with it? Think about you and your money. I know, I start talking about money, but we all start mm, get a little nervous, right? Everybody, maybe I'm the only one nervous in here, right? But, but when we talk about money, you know, our society constantly promises that money will provide what we want. Success, comfort, peace, power, freedom. Leading our fickle hearts to trust in money for things that it was never intended to give us. Even if we think what the Bible says, that we know what the Bible says about money, there seems to be a gap many times between our theology and how we live. Think about it. If you have money and you don't have debt, how does that make you feel? Free. Oh, I can breathe. Maybe generous. Maybe powerful or stable. How does money make you feel? Do you control your money or does your money control you? If you truly want to know your priorities in your life, look at your bank statement, look at your credit card statement. That will tell you what's most important. It will tell me what's most important. We can't get around it. Tithing. There are four aspects of Scripture that I want to talk about today, about tithing and giving. How many? Four. Oh, we've improved. That used to be three. One, two, four, right? Yeah. One, two, three, four. Four things. Here's the first one, the Old Testament and tithing. Now, I'll be honest with you. I got a thousand and one verses. I had to get on my knees early this morning and tell Hunter, Hunter, forgive me for the amount of verses that I gave you to put on the screen today. It's actually going to be Chris's job to do that. And then we got the laughing. I bet you don't cover even half of them. Maybe not. We'll see. There are a ton of verses on tithing. And tithing, is, it's basically a tenth. From Genesis through the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, the Lord commands his people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, to give a tenth away. Here's one of them in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. 
This is what the Lord tells his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Every tenth of the land's produce. How much? Tenth. That's after nine, okay? Every tenth of produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to him. Even the firstborn of a young couple or even an older couple was the Lord's. Now, they didn't sacrifice their firstborn, but they would have to go to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting, and then the temple to offer a sacrifice. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, there's another passage where the Lord is telling them, instead, turn to the place the Lord your God chooses from all the tribes to put his name for his dwelling and go there. Where was that? Jerusalem. It's where the tabernacle was built. And then the temple was built. And that's where they would go for all of their temple sacrifices. That was where God resided in the Holy of Holies. And you're to bring there your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tents and personal contributions, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and your flocks. All of it. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see a tithe, a tithe, a tithe, but not just the tithe, but all these offerings as well. If you read the prophets, they constantly encouraged, exhorted, challenged, even confronted God's people about their lack of giving and tithing, or they would give the worst or the least. Many times it was the sick and wounded animals to their sacrifices. The very last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, this is what he said, and the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. How do do we rob you, the people say? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You see, Malachi confronted, and he says, you're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth, the full tithe into the storehouses so that there may be food in my house. Test me this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. You see, God speaking through Malachi and the prophets was challenging, encouraging confronting his people to be faithful in tithing. Okay, cool. That's the Old Testament, Doug. But we're in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant. Where does it say in the New Testament about tithes and offerings? What about that? Where does Jesus teach about it? Where does the early church talk about tithes? I don't see it there. Okay, maybe. We are in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant. But we will see that many times in the New Testament, many of those Old Testament laws and commandments are done away with. Why? All the commandments about the temple sacrifices, done. Why? Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. We see the reinterpretation of many commandments, like the dietary ones. Praise the Lord, we don't have to follow the Old Testament laws of diet. We couldn't eat bacon. Y'all are still sleeping. 
Because swine was considered an unclean animal in the Old Testament. But Jesus taught, and even Paul, we will see it in Acts here in a few weeks, where Jesus says, it's not what goes in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. Because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. So Jesus changed and he reinterpreted it. See, Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, had the power and authority to do that. And then we also know that there's several commands that were even amplified to a greater degree. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if a man looks at a woman and lusts after her, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you curse someone in your heart, you've committed murder. Could tithing be one of those amplified commandments? All right. The second point with this second sermon is this. Jesus commands an example about tithing and giving. Here in Matthew chapter 23, 23, it's one of the great woes where he says, Woe to you hypocrites, you Pharisees, you religious rulers, you Sadducees. You pay a tenth, a tithe, of mint and dill and cumin. And yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Did you get it? Dill, mint, and cumin were the tiniest herbs that were planted. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were so uptight on tithing the very smallest of their harvest. And yet they neglected what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Did you get what Jesus said? These things of justice and mercy and faithfulness you should have done without neglecting the other, tithing. Jesus highlights there in the temple complex where the coffers were to receive all the tithes and all the offerings. Wealthy people many times would come and they would blow with horns and they would pour out all their money that they were tithing and giving. And Jesus is there watching this is, in, this is in Mark 12, 41 through 44. And this old poor widow comes up and she puts in two copper coins, two pennies. And Jesus is like, whoa, wait a minute. Stop. All the wealthy, they're giving tons. But do you see that old poor widow? She gave just two Yet she in her poverty gave more than any of the wealthy. You see, we'll see in a minute that God looks at the heart. And it's not the amount, but it's the attitude of the heart. And he says, this widow gave everything she had. The third point, say three. Three, woof. Three, it's the life or it's the generosity and the life of the early church. The generosity and life of the early church. And we'll go quick. We've seen this in the past, Acts chapter 2 and 4. 
the church, the early church was very generous. They were there giving, selling what they had, giving to the apostles. And we'll see it here in a couple weeks with the deacons, serving to the widows and to the poor. But they gave to serve and help those in need. That was the first thing they did. The second point that the early church did was to support suffering believers and believers in churches. If we roll over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 through 4, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He had already started that church, and he's now in a different part of the world. He writes them a letter. And this is the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. And this is what Paul tells them. Now about the collection for the saints. What saints? The saints, the poor church, the impoverished church in Jerusalem, the mother church. Now about the collection for those saints, because Paul was traveling all around planting churches, but also raising up funds for the poor. And that was he was commissioned by Peter, James, and John to do that. So he's telling them, look, do the same as I instructed to the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, each of you should set aside something and save in keeping with how he is prospering. So each one should give according to what he's making, what the Lord has given him, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. But when I get there, When I arrive, I will send with letters those who you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And Paul says, and if it's suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. So the second reason why the early church gave and tithed was to support poor, suffering believers, saints, and churches. The third reason was missional work, new work. While Paul was in Corinth, he wrote the letter to the Romans. And at the very end of his Roman letter in chapter 15 to 24, this is what Paul says, Romans 15, 24. And Chris, you are doing a great job. Paul says, whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey. You see, Paul told them in this same chapter, chapter 15, he's like, I'm done with all my work in Eastern, in the Macedonian area in Turkey, in the eastern half of the Roman world, the gospel has been proclaimed. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to get to Spain where there is no church, there is no gospel presence, and I'm going to pass through Rome, and you guys are going to help me get there. How? By giving. The fourth reason is this, in the early church, it was to provide for the ministers shepherding the congregations. In 1 Corinthians 9, 14, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, because see, the Corinthians were eager to give. And he says, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Your tithes and your offerings pay for my paycheck. It's not the only thing. If I live for the gospel... I get supported by the gospel. And in this same chapter, Paul is telling and he's teaching, those of you who receive spiritual blessings need to sow back into those who pastor and lead you with those physical blessings. Paul says something very similar in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, or chapter 5, sorry, 17 and 18, Paul says, the elders who are good leaders, are to be considered worthy of double honor. Not just 
honor like spiritual. We honor, but double honor, there has a connotation of supporting them financially, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. So in the New Testament early church, we see they gave, they were generous, they tithed to support and help those in need. They gave and supported and tithed to support suffering believers in churches for new missional work and for the ministers and elders pastoring those churches and congregations. That's why. Now, if we take a big step back, and I want to ask the worship team to come forward, and Chris, we're not going to hit these verses, but the fourth point is the attitude of the heart. We, all of us, need to remember that the Psalms say everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We need to remember that, that our money, what we have, it's not ours. It's his. And we see all throughout Scripture, the parable of the talents, where we will be held accountable for the, how we use the resources that God gives us. And it's not a matter of question of how much it is or how little it is. It's a question of are we being faithful with what God has given us? Scripture commands us in Proverbs, we need to honor the Lord with our wealth, with the first fruits of what we have. Scripture also commands us and tells us that where your money is, there your heart will be. And that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You don't have to be wealthy to love money. And just because you're wealthy doesn't mean that you love money and are arrogant. Paul also encouraged the Corinthians church that each one of us should decide in our hearts what to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. All of us are commanded to give, to be generous. Jesus himself gave his whole self for our salvation. He paid it all on the cross. Giving of our tithes and our offerings, first and foremost, it is an act of worship. We give of our offerings. We tithe because we worship him. Number two, it's an act of trust. Lord, I trust you by giving back to my church leadership. My tithe and my offering, I submit to them because I submit to you. And there is a question, an issue of trusting us who lead you spiritually. Number three, tithes and giving our stewardship. It's a commandment. We're commanded to give. Number four, tithing requires wisdom, discernment, and self-control. Jesus was generous. His followers are generous. Number six, money is a heart issue. It's hard. It can get really complicated, especially if we have debt or we're just terrible at managing our money. I want to encourage you, don't try to do it yourself. If you truly are in financial straits, seek help. I'm willing to walk with you. There are tons of resources. I want to encourage you to stand up. And I've got three questions I want to leave with you. 
And as we sing this song, really ponder. A couple of us will be over here at the Next Step Station, and we would love to pray with you. But here's the first one. Let us never take for granted the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ananias and Sapphira did, and they suffered greatly. The second one is this. How are you honoring the Lord with your wealth? And my third question is, what is your next step with your finances? If this is your church, you are called and commanded to give and tithe. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. If you love Jesus, we are called and commanded to be generous and to give as an act of worship, as an act of trust, as an act of honor. And it's all for the Lord Jesus' glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this incredible day. Jesus, we love you. Lord, I just pray your blessing upon all of us here. Lord, especially for those who really, for those of us who really struggle with our finances, with debt, and we feel like there's just no way out. Give us the courage to ask for help to humble ourselves. Lord, help all of us be generous. What's that next step? Is it to start just giving a little bit? Lord Jesus, may we humble our pocketbooks before you, not just for today, not just because we heard about it, because Doug said it, but for life. May we give you our bank accounts, our debt, our finances, our paychecks. And may you lead us into humility, generosity, and giving for your kingdom's sake. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's worship him.